Welcome to the Team Behind the Team podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Mae. This is the monthly show focused on building conversations around the team-based model approach to athletic performance, strength and conditioning, sports medicine, sports science, mental health and wellness, and sports nutrition. Hello and welcome back to the Team Behind the Team podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Mabe, and man, oh man, have we got a guest today that I am so excited for everybody to hear. If you've never met uh, our guest, we'll get to him in just a second. But before that, Coach Mike Hanson, the co-host, is back in the house today. Coach, say what's up to him today. Hey, everybody. Happy to be back. Coach Hanson, how you been doing? You doing all right, brother? Doing good. Um, as we were just talking about, finally got back into the to the gym yesterday. Got to coach for the first time since COVID began, um, outside of some postgraduates throughout COVID. But um, doing really well given the circumstances, and just happy to be back with athletes. That's good stuff. Well, uh, coach, thanks for joining us on the podcast again. And, Thank uh, you. Yes, sir. And then let me do a quick introduction of our of our, of our special guest. And uh, if you, before I get into this, I want to give a little history. So our guest, uh, the first time I've met and saw and heard him, so kind of those three things, was in 2013 at a hammer strength clinic. And uh, so I would never heard of our guest. And when I first heard him, he just, I was captivated. And I'm a college strength coach. And, then, man, I got to hear this guy speak. I said, man, I got to connect with this guy. He just seems like he's not only a great coach, but authentic. He cares. He's real. Coach Zach Evanish, welcome to the show. Thank you for making time, Coach. I'm excited. I love Texas, man, but that, you know, all the pump up you gave me, let's go. I like, I like the pressure, so I'm okay with that. All those compliments, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold the line. That's awesome. Well, Coach, hey, thank you for – I know you got crazy schedule like all of us right now in this the midst yep. of the pandemic, and you're, you're fighting to kind of keep your head above water like us. So thank you for making time uh, to be on the show. My pleasure. You know, just real quick, when I, when I met you, Coach, again, just hearing your story, you know, you talked about that first, that first clinic I heard you speak at about just all the injuries and the different types of training. That just, you know, that really just stuck with me um, because that, coming from college and being in college sports myself, you deal with a lot of injuries. And to hear you talk about that in a way that was refreshing and have application and different just a different lens to, to evaluate the athlete kind of was at the time, this was like seven years ago, that was all starting to come on the scene. I feel like you were kind of ahead of the game a little bit, but um, that's where it's at today. That's what this podcast is about a lot of times, just keeping athletes health, healthy. So uh, that may have been coach. 20, was that in New Jersey coach? Yeah. That, I think that was 2010. Was it at uh, Kane university? That's it. Probably? Yeah. So it was, it's been 10 years. I think that was 2010 because it definitely wasn't 2013 because that was right before I went to Lehigh, I think 10 years ago. Ooh. That's right. Coach, thanks again. If you, everybody, kind of your name, everybody, the underground strength coach. So that's kind of what he goes by if you Google him. So if you look him up, you got to check him out. So um, well, let's kick off the show. Coach Hanson, I'm going to yeah. pass it over to you. Kick us off, Coach. For sure. Um, Zach, if it's okay, um, we're going to just jump right into it. Um, and I think – audience um, or rather your bio will start to surface um, as a result of some of our questions um, but something about you that our listeners will certainly pick up on um, pretty quickly is 
how energetic and passionate you are about what you do. And I mean, we've spoken to you before with our staff. You're very driven um, and very proactive as a coach. Um, so my question is, where does that drive stem from? And how do you continue to fuel your fire um, over the course of your career? Yeah, when I kind of get that question or variations of that question, it, it brings me back to like my kind of middle teenage years. You know, I started training at age 13, but then by the time I was like 15 or so and joined our local gym, I still remember uh, always organizing training partners and training groups. And then people would say, man, I love training with Zach. Zach gets me going. And I still recall one of those groups. It was a bunch of like local guys. We all grew up together. They, uh, one of the kids, his name was Jimmy. He says to me, he had his license. So I remember he would drive us. He's like, I can't go to the gym without you. He's like, you get, he's like, you get me going. You get this group going. He's like, I went with Steve. And he's like, it, it was just not, he's like, there was no energy. And so I remember kind of being the fire in every group. And the, and the group always counted on me for it. And I didn't see, like, I wasn't like, oh, somebody else has to do this. I was just fired up. I fell in love with training. And then when I get on the weight room floor, I still have that fire that I did as a kid, except now, you know, I have a deeper understanding of why I'm doing this. You know, in my early years of coaching, the fire was helping these athletes dominate and win. And just, I was so intense, you know, in my mid twenties, late twenties, I actually didn't get really into strength and conditioning until my late twenties. I think, um, I may have been 27 or 28. I had torn my ACL. And so I was kind of late to the game, you know, with regards to strength and conditioning. I didn't have internship or anything like that. It was all private. And so those early years, that fire was honestly, it was a lot of kind of my inner demons, you know, my lack of success in athletics. And then all of a sudden finding this, these better methods of training, I was excited to share it with other athletes so they didn't have to lose the way I did. And now everything was kind of about winning and putting points on the scoreboard. But as I got older, you know, my philosophy and I guess definition of winning completely changed. And now I look more of like strength and conditioning is a vehicle to help people improve at life in anything at life. And being a dad, I always say, has been the big catalyst to my change in coaching because I started realizing, you know, how would I want my own son or daughter to be coached? Do I only want them to be, you know, coached, you know, to win, to get points on the board? Or do I want my kids to feel like this coach cares about them and he's going to talk to my son or daughter about, hey, listen, it is not acceptable for you to you might hit the most home runs on this team but you can't go you know if I speak to your teachers and they're not a fan of you because you're disrespectful and you're lazy and you're rude I don't care how many home runs you hit you're not a good person you know I so now I look at coaching more of this kind of life mentorship and I blend it all together and I feel like we've had more success because of that you know, evolution that I've gone through as, as a father and a coach. And uh, sometimes as a coach, you are the father, you know, and for the fee, you know, for the, our lady coaches, our female coaches, they are the mother, they become the mother. 
And so you become this mentor slash parent figure. And now things take on a whole new role. And so that's why I also I think in coaching and training, like I don't get too caught up in the method of training or the software or the spreadsheet and, and this and that. I get more focused on what kind of change can I help happen for this young individual. And, you know, for the people listening out there, if they're coaches or trainers who work with adults, look, sometimes those adults in their 30s, 40s, 50s, they haven't had anybody to mentor them. So they might be in their 40s, but they might still have that kind of insecure insecurities that they had at age 16 because nobody taught them strength beyond you know the weight on the bar and so now I look at training as a much deeper thing and that inspires me that gives me energy and and uh, I like the pressure of putting it on my shoulders and saying this is a heavy duty responsibility somebody a mom a dad you know a guardian an adult figure in this person's life just invested in me whether it's their time their finances their energy to do something and change this person's life. And so I look at it much differently. You know, my early years were the hype was about winning titles. Now I, I love, listen, I love winning and I hate losing, but I also love when I see the athlete do great things beyond athletics. You know, eventually athletics comes to an end in your own competitive, you know, career. But now how does that apply to their life? So I'm always kind of finding motivation and fire. It's, it's everywhere. I don't really complicate it, but I do listen to what's in my heart. Not to say my way is better than somebody else's way. You know, I, we, we evolve, and hopefully the coaches out there are evolving as well. For sure. Um, sorry, I'm going to take the mic or keep the mic here, Donnie. Um, so on that note, you kind of talked about how um, your coaching or maybe your view of winning is what I think you said has changed or shifted. Yes. Um, you talked about kind of how you coach kids has shifted. Um, so similarly, like over the last 15, 10, and even five years, um, there's definitely been a noticeable sociocultural shift, um, both in society, but also in our realm as performance coaches, right? There's been what seemingly more specialization, um, seemingly more and more content coming out. Um, there's definitely been a huge, pre um, I should say, um, or social media has become more prevalent, excuse me. Um, so I guess what I'm wondering is how has working with high school or even college age athletes, how has that changed? How have athletes changed over the last, again, 15, 10, five years? And again, you spoke to it a little bit, but could you also go in depth in how your coaching has changed with working with the modern day athlete? Yeah, through the years, I've definitely found ways to individualize within the group, whether it's individualizing a little bit of the training, whether it's individualizing the way I communicate with each kid differently because of the different personality traits within the same group. Whereas in those early years, it's kind of like a, it was like, uh, you know, a, a blanket or an umbrella of this is what we're doing today. I had, of course, progressions and regressions, if you couldn't do that correctly. But my, you know, uh, Brett Bartholomew is very big on this, you know, the art of coaching. 
my language and my style of communication didn't change too much for the individual kids. And then I started learning how, you know, kids within the same group, in the same sport, from the same school, university team, so on. There's going to be variations and individual differences in those groups because of their past experiences and because of their coaching experiences and how they were coached, how they were raised by parents, you know, what is their environment, where did they come from, did they come from inner city where it was very tough or did they come from super affluent suburbs where, you know, the refrigerator's always full and there's always, you know, there's no violence around them. It's like, so all these things really, I, I kind of, it's like a soup, you know, there's so many things going on, but you got to make it, you know, taste good. And so that has certainly just experience in general has gotten me better. Have the kids changed? You know, sometimes we hear that kids are different. Then you see somebody posting a meme. Oh, kids are not different. Parents are different in the way they raise them. Look, everything is different. We, you know, parents are different. Kids are different. The environment is different. The way we consume information is different. The amount of information consumed is completely different than it was 5, 10, and especially 15 years ago. And so all of those things are taken into consideration and I'm sure things are going to continue to evolve. And that's why as a coach, you have to be very much a chameleon. You've got to be ready to change. And like, for example, you guys are in Texas. I guarantee you that the kids that were maybe born and raised in Texas, they've probably got some different personality traits that have some commonalities compared to kids that might be coming from, let's say, New Jersey. And look, even in New Jersey, I have two gyms. The one gym in North Jersey, the kids have a different personality trait, as do the parents. And then I have one down by the beach. This is, and then this is a different kind of personality traits, and the kids have kind of a different work ethic. And it's interesting. You're like, man, I wouldn't imagine that, you know, 50 minutes away, there's going to be these differences. But in New Jersey, I always say 15 minutes to the richest parts of the country, 15 minutes to the beach, 15 minutes to like the woods and 15 minutes to the hood. Like you could go kind of everywhere and experience so much differences all within this small radius. And so as a coach, it's not enough to be a great technician. It's not enough to be great at teaching weightlifting or great at, you know, pulling the data from this force plate and applying it because that's really like a a small aspect. You have to be able, if these, if these kids, or if you're working with adults, if the people you're working with don't trust you and don't feel like you care, you're going to lose them. And, um, you know, Michael, you're you're a little bit younger than uh, coach Donnie and I, but coach Donnie, a couple of months ago, maybe a year ago, I interviewed, uh, coach Johnny Parker, who had, you know, spent time from the high school to the colleges to the NFL. And I, he said this great quote, he probably had shared it, you know, decades before, but he said, good coaches, coach weights, great coaches, coach people. And to me, that's, yeah, that's huge. And look, 
when Coach Parker was coaching in the NFL, you know, just looking at his pictures, he didn't look like he was some world record power lifter or he didn't have a, a background as a pro athlete. But you know what? He cared about those athletes. And that's why you would hear stories about him showing up at 5.30 a.m. and the guys would be stretching in the parking lot before he even got there. They probably they you get that feeling like oh man coach cares about me so much I can't let him down and then I let myself down somebody who could really get into the heart of of the athletes that you're working with that's really I feel like when we get into the epitome of coaching you know the other stuff it doesn't blow my mind as much you know some people get really hyped up on like this I'm doing conjugate I'm doing you know, the tier system, I'm doing the high-low method, um, you know, I'm doing this, I'm, I'm doing that, I'm doing, we're doing eccentrics, blah, 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 triphasic. I've, I've seen kids come from all of that stuff, and, you know, I, I've found a lot of times some of the best athletes come from the less fancy um, facilities and the very basic training programs. I, I posted on Instagram a few days ago, a guy was in, um, oh, I'll have to pull it up. I think he was in Dagestan, which is Russia. And he posted a video of their, of their gym. Their gym is out on um, concrete slab. <laughs> but they're world champion. They, they have, I, I think, that might be the area that produces the most world champions and Olympic medalists in wrestling. Their, their quote-unquote weight room looked like a prison yard. Yeah. And, you know, they don't have the fancy equipment we have access to, but their coaches are very chameleon-like. Their coaches have an art form to them. And so I always look at kind of all these factors that we think make these big differences. Then you see somebody come from, you know, horrible conditions, yet producing Olympians. Coach, I got, me, yeah. I got here a quick story. Because sure. you're on a good point. I think, uh, you know, I, I, you made me think our men's tennis team here, the, the, they just got a new facility a couple of years ago. But prior to that, their facility that they'd had for 32 years was completely leveled. Uh, the hospital bought that land, and they had to train coach. This was out for, for Texas. We were out in the in, in mural courts. I'll, I'll never forget that they had cracks all in the pavement. The boys were – we're, they were lockering out of like the little uh, trailer, and it was—I mean, it, for, for like a big college, that's where they—they they had to train out of for four years. And I'll never forget warming them up out there, Coach Hanson. Uh, it's been several years now. The fence fell off the the post onto the onto the courts, and I was like, "What is going on, man?" And <laughs> I was like, "We're gonna get—we're gonna get like injured out here just warming up." And uh, I'll, I'll never forget that, you know, to to your point, deprivation is a motivator sometimes when you don't have the resources yep. and you don't have, you have to be creative. And man, if you really want to get good at what you do, you're going to find time, you're going to make space and you're going to find a way to get it done. And, and so I think I agree with that. I think sometimes you can, it can be too much kind of sitting there and then you take it for granted and you don't train as hard in the, in the, in the kid over here that does it maybe comes from a broken family or he's got big dreams and he don't have the facility. He's out working that other kid. He's but he's talented too, right? Yes. And when you meet him up, man, he's got he's got a little, you know, 
not to be too cliche, but he's got a little eye of the tiger there, Coach. I don't know. I love, listen, it's the truth. When you come from everything so fancy and so perfect, you get spoiled. That's the truth. And I always go back to that, Coach, with um, when Apollo takes Rocky back to the tough gym. And, uh, you know, Mickey, Mickey told him, he said, the worst thing that could happen to a fighter is you get civilized. And so, look, I love seeing these universities blowing up. Of course, it helps recruiting, but it's great to see kids just being some of these kids, you know, whether it's football, tennis, my daughter plays tennis. Tennis is, I, I never knew how intense it is. Yeah. You know, oftentimes they're training twice a day. My daughter in the summer, 8 a.m. to 1230, no break, four and a half hours of just going. In Florida, they train two hours in the morning, two hours again in the afternoon. They're doing double sessions. And so to have a beautiful facility, that must feel good for, that must feel good for the kids. But sometimes that comfort is a negative. It just becomes, it's so perfect. It's so nice. Well, what is sports is really about all the imperfections. Sports is about kind of how things don't go your way. And then how do you show up when the cards are not in your favor? And so, you know, hearing that story, uh, a kid I used to coach, he started in high school, then he went to community college, then he went to college, and then he became a Division One strength coach. And he's been in some of the big schools, um, Power Five schools. And then uh, like two years ago, maybe a year and a half ago, he left one of those big schools and went to a small university. He does track. He's the, tr he's the jumps coach and the strength coach. And um, he told me they don't have a track. So they go down to like a, you know, a, a park that's in the city. And uh, he's like, that's where we train. And he's like, our weight room, he's like, it reminds me of the original underground. He's like, there's these heavy dumbbells up to 150. He's like, it's crowded. He's like, it's perfect. He's like, because these kids really want to work. And, you know, his whole, like, his journey into being a strength coach, when I look at what he did as an athlete, when he was at community college, he joined the track team so he can learn how to sprint to get better at football. Then when he got to the four-year college, he joined the football team. He played football his senior year in high school, but he would like, he was so hungry to learn. And then when he got into strength and conditioning, he, you know, went and got mentored by, you know, like Bush Nectar and just these great guys, but he would fly across the country and just take his last dollar to get mentored. And that hunger comes because he grew up with not a whole lot. He yeah, was, yeah. he was hungry for success. You know what my buddy Joe DeSena talks about that movie, uh, Cinderella man fighting for milk when you're who's fighting for milk. You know what I'm saying? True. Right. Yeah. And to your, to your point, coach, we've talked about as a staff, even here at Texas, that it's awesome that we're able to provide these, you know, first class facilities, Yes. Um, we have a great budget where we can get just about anything that we, we think we need for our athletes, but there's definitely that trade-off, right? It's, you know, if you keep, um, and maybe spoon, spoon fed's not the word, but if you keep spoon feeding athletes, um, you do lose that drive. I think I, um, it's just, like I said, um, those athletes who come from nothing, they have something to fight for. They've worked through adversity 
And at the end of the day, like you said, that's, that's what sport comes down to yep. is when you're down or when it's tied late, you know, where, where are you drawing that fire from? Um, and so we have talked about that being at Texas where we are lucky in a lot of senses um, to have the environment that we have. But I even spoke to my friend who's the director at Towson um, yesterday and we were talking about our different budgets and I was like, Hey man, I have so much more respect for you as a coach. And I bet your athletes even appreciate it more for the amount of teams and athletes that you have to filter through that weight room. That's half our size with half the equipment um, with maybe double the schedule. Cause even at Texas, I think we have 20 sports total between five weight rooms. Um, crazy. And as <laughs> sometimes we get caught up with ourselves kind of, well, who's training when and how much overlap is there is like, we face nothing compared to a lot of high schools call um, some lower tier colleges um, with regards to their budgets. Yeah. And so I just, I think that's a great point to younger coaches too, um, who are coming up is, is I've heard it before. It's not about necessarily the logo that you're going after. It's these coaches who have experience at Towson organizing that and then switching your menu of exercise selection to still fit the needs of the athlete, you know, despite those circumstances. I mean, that's a lot harder and takes a lot more creativity than what I have to do here at Texas with two teams. So. It, yeah, and look, it may, and, but like you said, too, you get it. Look, in strength and conditioning, sometimes we're lucky. Sometimes we land, you know, a better job in a better place with more money. It is, it is what it is. You know, I'd say certainly my – somebody asked me a great question a couple of weeks ago. I said, what could you do better? And I didn't, uh, I kind of was thinking of like training and, you know, you know, the, the technical aspect of things. And then I just started realizing like, man, I could work less. That's what would make me better. And so sometimes being in these schools, maybe like your buddy at Towson, I don't know how many teams he's coaching, but when you're coaching, you know, eight groups a day and you got to bring that thunder, it's actually not healthy. Because you're always hyper, then you're, you know, it's like the cortisol up and down. Yeah, you don't that's ever actually, come down. Yeah, it's not good. It's not good for your health. So that's something that's kind of been on my mind is like, I'm, I coach about 100 to 200 kids a day between the high school and then my private facility. And um, the hardest um, program I've ever been part of is the high school because the equipment was such crap. The setup was horrible. And, you know, I came in at like in the middle or the end of a season. I didn't even come in in the beginning of, of a school year. Um, some of the coaches didn't even su support it, the, you know, and now we got this whole COVID thing and there's so many, it's tough where I, I gotta be honest with you. I, I look back and I'm like, man, when I coached at Lehigh and Rutgers, sure there were challenges, but, you know, I remember Buddy Moore saying when he worked with uh, the Cleveland Browns, he's like, Zach, the hardest thing I did there was turn on the lights. I didn't really grasp what he was saying, but what he was saying is I'm working with the best, you know, athletes in the world, right? They always say, like, why is America not dominating weightlifting? We say because our best athletes are in the NBA and the NFL. <laughs> you know, they're not weightlifting. And so you tell them what to do and they could move so great and then you've got these you know multi multi-million dollar facilities and then they got the food for you know so now it's like at this high school it's like man this place is a mess you know this 
You know, it's hard just to get somebody to get me a spray bottle to wipe down equipment. (laughs) You know, stars earned, I think. Yeah. And so we, as coaches and athletes, as a coach, I think the goal is, yeah, you want to be in a great place where you could really just be able to coach, but everything is going to be flawed. It will never be perfect. And sometimes when you're in, you know, everything's so great. Donnie, it was probably such a benefit for the men's tennis team. When I first got to Lehigh, they had just got a brand new building, yeah. brand new weight room, brand new re- – it was like $25 million facility. What did I do for the first two weeks? Train them outside. <laughs> no facility. And so, you know, I was like, man, these, these guys got to get out of this perfect, you know, beautiful setup because I got to get these guys tough. And so – even when I was there, you know, in the wintertime, there was aspects where we got outside for a little burst here and a little burst there. And, and it's cold in the wintertime in Pennsylvania, I'll tell you that. But I knew that training had to blend physical and mental. It couldn't just be, you know, the perfect conjugate program or the perfect high-low system. And I'm only doing what my, you know, what, whatever, you're using a wearable or you're using a force plate. I'm following that to the T. So when you do yeah. that stuff, you're missing the, the, the individual as a whole. That's good, Coach. I remember the, the famous story by Phelps. We talks about when his, when his goggle leaked. His coach yeah. breaking the goggles on purpose. Yeah. Broke it. So he'd make him swim in the dark in his training sessions is what he would do. And so he had to swim. He had to know, he had to know the number of strokes it took from get to one side to the other. And, and so when his, his goggles leaked with water and he couldn't see, he fell back to his training, right? That's kind of what saved him. He ends up breaking the record, right? And I like the office. And his coach trained him for like, hey, you're going to be traveling internationally. Something's going to go wrong at some point. And so you've got to prepare kids for that adversity uh, on the road like that when everything's not perfect and things kind of fall apart. Can you still get focused, compete, and still win? And so that's, that was interesting to, to read that about Phelps. So. It's, um, and you know what else, too, kind of like, Going back to one of those earlier questions you guys asked me about the kids being different, um, some kids are going to resist when you push them into a tough situation. And that's when I, I tell them, guys, you know, yesterday I was very tough on the kids because a group of them were really screwing it up. And I said, you, you blew it today. You wasted a great opportunity to get better, and you couldn't focus. You couldn't stop talking. You couldn't socially distance. You had an opportunity to get better. And I said, I'm, I'm upset with you. I'm disappointed because I care. So don't be all like going to the corner saying, you know, Coach Zach, he sucks. He's an asshole. He's on my case. You want to – you know when you want to be upset? When I ignore you. When I stop. Yeah. And, and look, you know, sometimes you can't give that kid all the attention either. It's, it's really unfair to the, to the athletes that are working. Then I'm giving this athlete all my energy. It's like a negative energy. Then it messes up your kind of, you know, the, your, your emotional energy. Now I got to shut that off and go talk to these athletes who are crushing it. But, you know, I just finished having to really have a, a pretty bad discussion with five other kids. You know, we don't, you don't want to be in that situation. And so tricky thing really with like the, at the private sector, 
you have a bunch of different athletes from different schools and different sports in the room at the same time. And so, you know, when you try to explain the best thing you could do is be a great teammate, they might not quite grasp that. I don't go to that school. I'm not in that sport. How am I, you know, we need great training partners. That's also something that I've noticed the kids of today struggle with is they don't know how to really like coach one another, pump each other up. They're like quiet because they're so used to text messing each other. And I tell them, you know, don't be socially awkward, learn to communicate. And so there's kids that will take your advice and, and transform themselves. And there's others that are not going to be as coachable. And I get that too, because when I was in my teenage years, I was not the most coachable. You take, you take things very personal, you know, and that to me was my own downfall. I would say my coaches were crazy tough on me. They were crazy in a good manner. I look back now and they changed my life, but I didn't know how to work with it. They also, you know, in the early nineties and late eighties, when a coach would ream you out, you know, it was pretty rare that later on they're like, Hey man, I just want to tell you, I love you. They didn't say that stuff. They didn't say, I care about you. I love you. It was a super like cut and dry. They're like, they're attacking you or, you know, it was, I think it was like all like intense and win. And so today as a coach, you have to be almost like a therapist or something. You have to talk in all these different, different ways to reach the kids. But if your goal is to help them, then that's on us to learn these different forms of communication. Yeah. And coach, to your point, real quick, I, I I think you hit a you hit a real good topic there with coaching is because I have four daughters as well. I know you have you have children, two kids, yep, yeah. And so you when you and when you're working with kids today, they walk into your facility mentally. You don't know where they're at. You don't know what they've been through. You don't know what they what battles they're fighting. Because kids today are definitely, I would say, that's the one thing that social media. I know people kind of harp on it but it's true if you're always just mentally on you don't have a lot of capacity for feedback criticism being pushed because you're drained you know they've been up all night on their phone maybe 100 maybe they're in this kind of like emotional kind of whether it's social bullying or maybe they feel sad because they're not part of this group whatever and they walk yep. in the room you're trying to get them to think about other people and they're so focused on themselves the half the time, man, your challenge is trying to figure out where a kid is mentally in their head, but to get them to that next level. And it's, it can be challenging. Like you can be almost like a counselor, like you said. It's, and now think of it, they get to college, they start dating, then maybe the relationship ends. They see this girl or this guy with somebody else now. And I've always explained this at the college level to the kids is guys, what's harder? You know, the emotional stress when you argue with your girlfriend, you know, because I, I, I train just the, the wrestlers, or um, is it like this hard squat workout we're going to go through? And they're like, man, that, the emotional part of arguing with somebody just exhausts you. I said, yes, that's why you have to manage emotions. And I, I feel for the kids today because I remember, I always remember as in high school, I was so regimented. If it was like 10, 10 p.m., lights out, go to bed. These kids go to sleep with their phones in their hands. And then you'll be like, oh, man, like, you know, John Smith or Susie Smith liked my Instagram post three hours ago. 
that's 2.30 a.m. And then yeah. you're training them at 6 a.m. Yeah. And you're like, dude, this kid just slept three hours, maybe. Can, you know, three hours and you want to be an elite athlete. But so they're, they're constantly, um, their battery is constantly at a, like a drained point. And it's like, so basically the way I look at it is every athlete is operating, you know, like uh, not at their, not at their max. There's, they're always at a deficit because of lack of sleep, all of the incoming information. Um, even us, you know, we work, we're coaches. Think about our dad, you know, think about our parents. When my dad came home from work, nobody called the house line to talk about work. He had dinner and then we went outside, you know, no, but us, we're checking our email at nine at night. Then we're looking at Instagram. We're posting something, you know, for the business owner like myself, you're like constantly trying to get the info out there. It's like, man, it never ends. So I honestly, when, when I've been at the university level, I loved the fact that I could just coach and not have to hold a camera. Somebody else came in and did the video. Yeah. You know what I mean? I loved being able to just be with the athletes and then interact with administration, other coaches. If, you know, a recruit is coming in, I could speak to parents. I loved just being, boom, in the coach's kind of lane. Whereas when I'm with this kind of private sector, you've got to know business. You know, I had a email came through like two days ago. This guy was in like one of my earlier uh, groups. We go through like this 12 week business coaching and uh, he lived uh, overseas. He was out in uh, Europe and he was always wondering, Hey, can the things you do in America with running a business, can it work here? So when the group was over, he got involved with another group of guys. He like franchised his business. It didn't work. He lost a lot of money. And that franchise was in his area of the UK. And he's like, man, it sent me. I got depressed. I lost money. I went into debt. Da, da, da. And it's like in the private sector, it's not enough to just be a great coach. You now got to be a great business person. You have to double time your investment of of knowledge and business. And so that's why we have heard of some of the greatest coaches out there. They could never run their business because they don't, that all they know is what's in their lane. So when, and then in the university, you need to have, you're in the, you're coaching, but then you've got to be able to communicate with the kids. I think when we did the, uh, the staff, you know, uh, Zoom call, I spoke about mistakes I made, which was, not spending enough time with administration or outside of the athletics department. Probably the downfall there is I'm running my own business and coaching at a university plus juggling life. And so as coaches, we get so much. And I think a great place to be as a coach is when you could just go to that university and coach and you could do this kind of one thing, private sector, life is crazy. <laughs> Yeah, not not to take away from the balance of the private sector because you do have to invest, like you're saying, that much more into the the sales aspect and marketing yeah. aspect. But as as your good friend and and also our good friend Brett Bartholomew makes a good point is like as much as I hate to admit it, is like sales is still a part too of even in the college setting, yes. and that's what I think some of our interns come in and and don't necessarily realize. And 
I even see it especially in some of our really well-in-tuned X's and O's interns, interns who are very well-read is like, you know, again, I hate the negative connotations that come with salesmen, right? You think of a used car salesman. But the truth is that if you're working with 18 to 22 year olds who are already at a point that they're taught to question just about everything, yes, like you have to be able to communicate with each of them. Consider like we talked about prior, um, all the stressors they're dealing with and then educate them. Hey, this is why I'm asking you to do this. This is why I'm asking you to come back in later today and recover or use this modality. Um, and so I think that's, again, that's a point that does get hit, I think in our field, but I don't see enough interns that come into us that fully understand that. And I know I didn't, when I got into the coaching setting, I'm just, again, even to this day, still slowly accepting that, that the teaching piece, the sales piece, I mean, even marketing yourself to administration so that you can get that budget that you you're requesting. Like that's all a big piece about being a successful coach too. Um, even as a parent, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as a parent, it's right? Like, hey, you got it. I got to tell my son, listen, let me tell, let me explain to you why I'm disappointed when you don't make your bed and what that means. I'm selling my son on the power of making his bed and how that's going to improve sports and life, mm-hmm. you know, or, Hey, I've, I've already asked you to clean your room. I think like every day this week, <laughs> but you, ha- you know, you haven't done yeah. it. And let me tell you how this is going to, you know, how this is going to make your mom feel. So I'm selling him on, you know, cleaning the room and, you know, things that we do as parents. And then, you know, like Michael, you are so dead on. The kids coming into the university, they've been taught to question everything. And so now if we want them to follow through, we've got to build that rapport and trust with them. They're not going to feel eating breakfast is important until they realize that like you care about their well-being or sure. talk about how this is going to impact their academics, how they're going to feel better, look better. And look, some of these, you know, trust things is all on the physical. When I got um, hired at this high school, the first two weeks I didn't have a schedule. So I was just going to the weight room trying to communicate with kids. And I noticed that the kids were doing a lot of benching and curling. And I was like, all right, if I want to quote unquote sell them on getting in here, I got to make sure we curl every workout. We got to get curls in (laughs) and get some sort of a chest pump. And so I knew that if it was like, if they knew that like Friday was going to be some arms at the end. Oh yeah. It was just, I would do arms all the time. I got a bunch of bands. We're always doing push. I mean, I'd warm them up and I'd sneak in some biceps and triceps. I knew that that's what they believed in. And so that was, that was my in. If you know, you mentioned a car salesman, my wife only buys trucks because she her belief is that it keeps the kids safe. You know, people aren't going to cut her off or do all this stuff. So if, if I am a car salesman, you know, how do I find my way to the heart of the person who needs to buy something for the kids? Hey, you want to be safe? We need to probably get you into something that's a little bit bigger than this Prius that you might've been considering, you know? (laughs) So you're finding what's important to them then you give them that and then you get what they, so you're giving them what they want. And then your job is also getting them what they need. And then ultimately 
you are, it's so interesting, man. Like a couple of the college kids that I didn't really connect with at the last university I was at connect with me more now. You know, one of them even reached out to me for like career advice and like life and family advice. I like barely worked with him in college. You know, I didn't have the flexibility because I was an outside contractor. So I wasn't there all day, but then I give him, now he comes to the gym and I give him freedom. He doesn't have to follow the program. I let him tell me what he's looking to do. I give him some ideas and it's, and it's like amazing, you know, now that he wants to be there and he says, man, I didn't utilize you like I should have. And, and look, I'm not like, yeah, that's right. That's right. You didn't because I remember what it's like myself to not be coachable, you know, to not be able to take feedback from a coach. And that's kind of the, the thing about being young at life is, you know, your experiences help you. It will shape your future. And sometimes we haven't experienced enough things, whether it's positive or negative to help us make a better decision, not necessarily the right or wrong decision. Um, You know, decision-making is huge. For sure. You got me thinking about um, autonomy because you just spoke like, you reach out to them about, hey, what do you want to do today? What are you looking, what's your goals? Um, I think autonomy is so huge, going back to creating buy-in or even selling yourself. just giving that athlete choice. And we all know it as coaches, how you can kind of manipulate it to, you know, I don't care if you pick from this section of the menu, cause we're going to yep. get just about the same goal. And to be quite honest, when you give them autonomy, you can even get more intent from that, right? If you have an athlete who loves to hex bar deadlift, but hates back squatting, you can get some similar attributes out of that, but you're going to get a different effect when you get that athlete who loves to trap our deadlift, if they're deadlifting right? Whereas back squatting, there may be, um, you know, pardon me, but half-assing it a little bit. And so I think autonomy is, that's a huge piece to coaching. Um, whether you throw it in the warm-up, whether you throw it for a major lift. Or weight um, selection. I'm always yeah. like, hey, meet me in the middle here, okay? You want to jump up a quarter. You want to jump up a qu- I said, let's put on a 10. You said a quarter. Let's meet me in the middle. Let's go 10 and a 5 on each side. Add a 10 to 5. If that looks great, I'll let you bump up to that quarter. Meet me in the middle. But the days of this is how we do it, it's, that's over. And, you know, yeah. like Donnie, I guarantee you our buddy Jesse, Jesse Ackerman, I yeah. guarantee you in the NFL there's a lot of guys, whether it's a rookie, whether it's a veteran, whether it's a guy who's got five years in, some guys might be like, Coach, man, like I love the bench. Or, Coach, I do not squat. I ain't squatting. Okay. You want a belt squat? You want a leg press? Let's just push. <laughs> Let's do some sort of like, you know, leg pressing movement. Whatever one you want, we got, like Michael said, I got a menu here of different steaks for you. Which steak do you want, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I think, you know, because well, all you guys were talking about, like that creating that buy-in with an athlete. And I go to go to your point, uh, Coach, Jesse uh, – one of their definitely one of their high level receivers there uh, in Atlanta, man. I've always asked him questions about how you get this guy to buy in, and and man, he's done a good job with him, you know. And and uh, you're right, he's not going to do certain traditional lifts, but if you can get him to try different things, like you said, Coach Zach, just meet me in the middle, and then they feel the performance advantage on the field 
Yes. And that's slowly how you gain that buy-in versus I – re, I remember talking to an NFL guy last year who was in town, and the guy had some lower back problems. He's a veteran, played for a really one of, the, one of the best teams in the league, and I don't know a street coach. They were making him back squat. I'm like, they were making you back squat? I, was, I couldn't believe it that yeah. sometimes – and me and Hanson, me and Hanson will get on this kind of – this rant sometimes, but the purest of like – You've got to squat at – if you don't go parallel or deeper, it don't count. And I'm just – as I've gotten older and worked with different athletes from all backgrounds, man, you you got to look at squat. It's a tool. It's not It's not a, a, a law. It's not mm-hmm. a – if we don't do this and you're not really a good strength coach. No, I'm like you, Coach. Like, how can we get this kid better? How can we give him the buy-in into the performance training and see the advantage on the field. And, and like you said, it ultimately to get them into a position where they're better people as well. So that creates that coach-athlete relationship. That creates trust and buy-in and bond. And, yep. man, that's way more important than any exercise selection. Yep. I, that is huge. Yeah. Okay, I like squats, Coach, but if I go all the way down, it kills my knees. All right, go as low as you feel comfortable. Don't go crazy heavy but we'll get some full range movements when we maybe go and do some split squats or step ups or walking lunges or like in the grand scheme of things, do I need that full, do I need to hit parallel in any leg exercise? Do I need to go below parallel? Well, it depends. Maybe they need, you know, more posterior chain strength than they do more of like that knee flexion. And so I'm pretty sure, um, who do you, was the, the sprinter that Charlie Fran, you know, uh, Ben Johnson, supposedly when he squatted, it was not a full squat. It was an above parallel, you know, not a half squat, but a little bit deeper than a half squat, you know? Yeah, so st- as long as he's still running fast, right? Yeah, he's, st- he's still running fast. And what do we want to avoid doing? We want to avoid, you know, forcing people into exercises or any activity that I call it like, don't mess with their chi, you know? Like, <laughs> you're always going to have some very unique athletes, and they, they might be like your standout on the team. On a football team, it's often going to be like your quarterback or the receiver, you know, somebody who's kind of like gets a lot of the attention. And so what makes them confident? What movements make them confident? Some of them want to lift heavy. They feel better lifting heavy. Some of them don't want to lift heavy. They only believe in speed. But if maybe their season does not end as they wanted to, then when you have kind of like a meeting with them, just say, when I look at our training, you know, I know you love speed work, but I felt, I feel like if you were a little bit stronger, like that guy wouldn't have been able to stop you. And if you're all right with it, we should try introducing what we call sub max strength work. You're not going to do a one rep max, but you do like, a set of three or five, but you feel like you could always do one more. If we do that once a week, that can make a big difference. We should test it out and see how you feel. But I feel like, you know, what do you think? You did all that speed work. The guys that beat you, what do you feel they beat you on? And then they honestly say, yeah, man, that guy was definitely a little bit bigger and stronger than me. You say, hey, that's all right. We're going to evolve. We're going to get better from this. So you're always like, it's always them. You're letting them realize they're really driving. They're, you know, they're driving the car. I'm the passenger. I'm going to read the map to you. And, uh, you know, if we get lost, 
you got to give me a chance to like maybe use a different app. You know, I'm going to use Waze instead of my maps on iPhone. You, they, you got to, it's interesting. I was honestly never like that in my early days. That's for sure. It takes time to learn that. And not, I'm very transparent about my mistakes because it's important to share those mistakes. Like Michael, you mentioned the, the young interns that come in. You know, an intern's got to be like 21 or 22 years old. I mean, how long has somebody that age been training? You know, for me, I started training age 13 and a half. That would have been nine years of me lifting. But, you know, think about, I think about how many thousands of kids you've trained. How many people have they trained? And sometimes people are, they look great. They could train themselves. Then they got no clue how to do any of this individualization that we're talking about. They don't know how, they think everybody's like them. Right. You know, that's a great point. But man, you're going to be working with 50 different personalities. For sure. I think there's, I mean, like you're saying, it's so important to note that there's too many variables to draw a line in the sand, right? There's, there's too many variables in performance and people to say you have to squat at 90 degrees. And one thing I try to communicate to all of our incoming freshmen each year is, look, it's not my goal to make all of you fit the sheet that I printed out. My goal is to eventually get to the point, hopefully pretty quickly, to make the sheet that I have fit you. Yep. Um, and I think we just get it backwards because we get caught up and excited in our creativity of programming and learning the next thing. But like you're saying, it's like, what works for me, a five foot eight male strength coach who played hockey, it's not going to work for a six foot six uh, female volleyball player that coach coaches. Um, yeah. What teams are you with, Michael? So I'm, I'm with women's swim and rowing here at Texas. Yep. But that's, yeah, just, yeah. There's just so many different variables, like we're saying, for demands of sport, for anatomical limitations, um, their training age, even to the point, like you said, if you grew up in this neighborhood and 50 minutes away is a completely different neighborhood, yep. that can affect too just like how you train, what you like, how you act in the weight room, how you perceive it. Um, and so there's just, there's too many things to just draw a line in the sand and everyone in that small box. Yeah. Did you guys ever hear what like coach Dan John has spoken about what, what shapes like athletes is uh, geography, genetics and opportunity or like, so meaning, you know, geography, um, football is big in Texas, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. So I'm probably, if I'm a boy, it's very likely I'll be playing football. Okay. Now genetics, what do you know, what do my parents gift me with? That's something that's going to shape me. So geography, genetics, and then what was the other one? Opportunity, yep. environment. Yeah. Opportunity. So what if, you know, I grow up in whatever, like, uh, I don't know, you know, sir, name it area. And I grew oh, up in Minnesota. Mike's from Minnesota. What are you okay. going to play Minnesota? What are you going to play? You think? Is it you're cold? hockey. There you go. It's cold. You are, you're hockey. Wrestling is pretty big there. If you're in Iowa, it's pretty likely you're going to be, you're going to be wrestling. Indiana, I don't know, basketball still pretty big there. But then your opportunity or like, uh, so you got genetics, geography, and then I think opportunity meaning what if by luck, like our buddy John Wellborn, his first coach was uh, Zangus, like a, a world-class powerlifter. Yeah. That changes everything. So mm -hmm. he gets started off training under or 
let's say, um, where was Gail Hatch? Was he in Louisiana? Louisiana. Louisiana. So um, Kurt Hester training under Gail Hatch. And then for speed, who was the guy who, who uh, started Velocity? Forget that guy. Oh, Seagraves, Lawrence Seagraves. Yeah, I think those were his mentors. Okay, dude, like that changes everything. And so having the opportunity to be close to that is, you know, it's tremendous. So if I, you know, surfing in, in my town is like a really big thing. You know, our town is like, they win like the, the national tournament in surfing. Why? You could ride your bike to the beach all year long, no matter the season and surf. They grow up, they're surfing at like two years old. You know, babies are surfing. Geography, your environment is such a, it, it shapes you. Or, you know, what I say about kids, like there's a lot of good football players that come from one of the most dangerous cities in New Jersey, Camden because they play street ball. That's their geography. That's the opportunity they had. And by playing a lot of street ball, you get tough, you get fast, and you actually get very good at the sport because you, you're playing nonstop, you know? So those things are big factors in what, you know, does that athlete bring, you know, bring to the table. And yeah. then, you have, then you have these differences that fall in between all those cracks. It's a real... You know, working with people in general is a pretty complex thing. Yeah, I'm, I think the book Talent Code touches on that oh, yes. um, environment piece or um, geography piece. Yes. They talk about like the good example that has stuck with me is playing um, soccer in Brazil barefooted. You're playing in these extremely small courts. And yep. so that when you bring them to a big field, they're so good at ball handling and knowing what to do next with the ball that Brazil is just – you know, head and heels above everybody else. Yeah. You know what's um, so yeah, funny about that? So you, you're talking about the men's tennis. That reminded me of the book Talent Code because they mentioned tennis in, I think it's called Spartak, Russia. In Russia, yeah. Where the kids are playing tennis in a warehouse with no heat. And not every kid even has a tennis ball. But that um, group like produces more junior um, world like ranked tennis players than anywhere else in the world in the crappiest conditions and without even every kid having a tennis ball. And then you mentioned the soccer in Brazil. When I was teaching elementary phys ed, the area I taught in, we had a lot, a lot of uh, kids from India and they would wear sandals like flip-flops to school, you know, or like those Velcro ones. And what did the phys ed curriculum was like, a lot of the teachers are like, oh, they're unprepared. They can't play. And so when they go to another teacher, they'd say, Mr. Avanesh always let us play when we had so played soccer and we had flip-flops. And the teacher's like, why are you letting kids play in flip-flops? I go, because there's kids all around the world playing barefoot in the sand, on right. dirt, and on pavement, and they're fine. This kid doesn't even own sneakers. That means he's going to be unprepared all year. Let the kid play. They're fine, you know. And so I had a different, I guess, my uh, knowledge of what kids are doing all around the world didn't make me afraid that kids are playing soccer on our grass field, little grass, not dirt, grass with flip-flops. That was what they were used to anyway. Then they come to America and the teacher's like, oh, no sneakers, can't play dude, you should play barefoot anyway, you know? So it's, 
Um, and think about that at the college, you're sponsored by a certain brand, Nike, Adidas, whatever. And now these kids get these Nike shoes you wear to, you know, everything's just like so perfect for them. It's like, look at the best weightlifters. A lot of times their training facility is not, those training halls are really Spartan. Like it's just interesting to see that. Um, and then I guess, you know, I know you guys, you're with the Olympic sports. I'm not sure, you know, when I look at football, which university has the most expensive weight room. Um, I don't believe that team is maybe not even in the top 10, maybe not even in the top 20. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. That's full circle from what we talked about earlier with that, of you know, how nice of stuff you have versus having athletes work through adversity. It's um, the coach. It's the coach who makes, who can make something great. Yeah. Go ahead, Donnie. I had a question. We're, we're, we're going to wrap up here in just a moment, but I, um, this is our first show, uh, Zach, since the pandemic hit that we've recorded. Okay. And just a little more personal question for you. Uh, something that I admire and definitely have um, been drawn to you during this time. It just, you, it just seems like you've got like this perspective and how you, you seem like you've just really navigated these challenges personally well. What would you say, Coach? How would you – I know there's coaches out there, layoffs, uh, people struggling in their businesses, getting shut down, yes. um, struggling uh, in their career path. Like, what would you say personally? Like, what have you done? And then what kind of encouragement would you give to people out there listening that are still just going through a tough time right now, Coach? Great question. Because I saw that. I saw this – sport teams getting cut or if they said, Hey, you'll be on until the end of 2021. If there's a season, if sport coaches are getting cut, I know that strength coaches are getting cut. I've seen it in the schools, you know, they're cutting, you know, uh, the teachers aides, the paraprofessionals, bus drivers, you know, cuts are happening, but in our industry, you know, number one, you can't sit on your butt. I, I don't, you know, you, if you're, if our whole thing is about teaching athletes to work, you've got to be a worker. Now I'm going to give you a quick story because I know we're dwindling on time. I tell all coaches, you should write your own book. And you know, um, I got so many books here, but one, one of the coaches that's worked with me in like a business aspect, I tell him to do stuff. He gets it done. He gets his book out. He created online programs for his athletes and for people who follow him on Instagram you know, that are not in New Jersey, he created multiple sources, you know, multiple streams of income. Unfortunately, our, we're so passionate about strength and conditioning, but we're, our industry is very volatile. It's so come and go, you know, you think administration loves you, you think the coaches love you. And then, man, like you could be the first person to get cut and it's, and it's heartbreaking. And so you don't want to just have this one source of income because it may not be that easy to get up and move as it once was because there's less jobs available now. Supposedly this, you know, pandemic that's causing this recession is going to take many years to recover from, you know, colleges that can't have a football season or can't have people in the stands. They say the big universities are losing 80 to a hundred million dollars just this year from football. So coaches need to have multiple streams of income. You can write your own book. 
And in that book should include stories, incorporate stories of transformation from athletes you've worked with. Should it include your story so that when you go to the next strength coach conference, you know, you have 10 of them with you and you meet coaches and you just say, Donnie, man, I had a great time having lunch with you and I wrote this book and I just wanted to give it to you. And if you have some downtime, maybe you leaf through it. But I, I, I really had a great time with you. So then I give you a book instead of a card or an email or follow me on Instagram. You start reading it and you're, you start connecting with it. And then a friend reaches out to you and, and he's like, Donnie, you know, you know anybody who we need somebody at Towson? And you're like, you know what? I just read this book by John, this guy, John Smith. And this guy would be a great fit for you. I'm going to give you his number. He wrote this book. And so that is very important. Multiple streams of income also with, with the, you know, online. You must research as a strength coach. You have to learn the business. You have to research answers to whatever it is that you need to get better at. And I, I've said it many times, like people are really good at just sitting on a phone, scrolling, and really wasting time. You know, the rule should be if you're going to be on the internet, contribute post a video, uh, engage in a conversation, build relationships by doing that, but do not waste time scrolling through it endlessly. And so it's not just enough to be uh, passionate about, you know, the performance industry, but you need to, I, I guess the best thing would be is like, look at Ron McKeefrey's books, you know, Strength Coach CEO. He speaks about all of those multiple streams of income you know, my, my one buddy said the only guarantee in our industry is there are no guarantees. And to me, that's like one of the yeah. most heartbreaking truths of our industry, you know? So I'm going to recommend you research business, not just training. You write your own book, you self-publish it on Amazon, and you get involved with a company like Train Heroic or another one of these apps to offer some online programming. And you do this. You know, you get involved with other coaches, be available when you can, um, because it will open up doors down the road. It's a, it's a relationship business. It's great advice. Yeah, I appreciate it, Coach. Thank you. Coach Hanson, any, as we wrap up here, any closing thoughts on today's podcast? You or Coach Zach, any closing thoughts? Yeah, we got about a minute and a half, but um, I wanted to fit this in there. The last time we spoke with you, we asked for resources, and then yes. I couldn't help but uh, – just get a big chuckle that you sent us the saga of the Tijuana Barbell Club. That's great. <laughs> and so if you, if you could just list like one or two resources that you'd recommend to coaches um, over the next minute here that we have left, um, okay. what would you recommend? I would recommend going on eBay and buying some old strength and health magazines from the awesome. 50s, the 60s, the 70s. Um, those are going to be great. So kind of learning the, the history of – the way they trained was a blend of powerlifting, calisthenics, weightlifting. Uh, same thing, like some Bill Starr, Strongest Shall Survive, is going to be great. Um, I've got a website, undergroundstrengthcoach.com, where I share a lot of old videos of people like Dr. Ken Leisner and training videos from my gym from 15 years ago. So I think trying to find some of the older stuff, and you guys have the uh, Stark Center, am I correct? Yeah. And Stark Center has online... They've put their, uh, I think, whatever's physical books is online there. So that's what I would tell them to go do, guys. I know it's about to shut down, 
Thanks to you guys. Love you guys, man. Much respect. Appreciate you. Talk to you guys soon. See you, coach. See you guys. Thanks. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Team Behind the Team podcast. For future episodes, go to iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. We definitely want to keep having great guests on the show and great content. So if you have a moment, please go to iTunes, leave a rating and review, and let us know how we're doing. I'm Donnie Mabe, and thanks so much for tuning in.